I truly love Christmas. I, I say this every year, and it's true every year. I like the tinsel. I like the multicolored lights. I like Santa Claus and his laugh. I like the, the, the Christmas movies. I like the Grinch. Uh, I, I like Christmas, um, and, and that's apart from the whole Jesus side of things, which I love even more. But, you know, it's just it's a wonderful season. It's tied up with so many memories I have about life and growing up and, and all those things of, of joy. And uh, I never did Advent as a kid. You know, I went to a, uh, a charismatic church in town, and, um, and I, was, I, I knew that there was more liturgical churches that kind of followed a, a calendar and stuff, um, but I didn't go to one of those, as, as we don't. <laughs> you know, and, and I knew that they had readings that they did, and I, I didn't quite understand why, and it seemed like it was always going to be boring to me. Like, you know, well, you know what's going to come. Like, you're going to remember this from last year. It's going to be the same tired message again as the, the pastor brings the same thing back out, and we talk about that same thing again. Um, and, and I began, the first year that I was a pastor, for some reason, I started looking into Advent and the traditions around it. And it has been absolutely life transformative for me to have a season beforehand where we pause and we don't rush ahead. You know, I think like what Leah was saying that in the beginning, sometimes Christmas happens before you even know it. It's like Thanksgiving, Christmas, bam, there we are. Um, and we go right into Christmas. And I think that sometimes we, we struggle with that idea because we don't work that way. Like, you know, whenever you're getting married, it's not like proposal, wedding, bam, it happened. There's, there's a season where you're getting ready, where you're anticipating it, where you're getting excited about it, where you begin to, to plan and, and dream and prepare, and you might put some money aside, you might spend all of your money, you know, but you have this season where you begin preparing for what's to come. When you're pregnant, you have, you have nine months, give or take, you know, before this baby comes, thank God. <laughs> or else can you imagine, oh no, I'm pregnant tomorrow. Oh, here's a baby. <laughs> you couldn't work that way. It would be so hard. Um, and Advent has become so meaningful to me as, as I've looked at the own rhythm of, of my own life. Uh, if you don't know, Leah put this on Facebook, so it, it's out there. But I'm, I'm going to a, a tech conference this week to speak. Um, I don't know how many pastors are flying out to Las Vegas later today, uh, but, but I'm one of them. <laughs> so I'm flying out to Vegas. I'm going to be speaking at a, at a tech conference for my, my day job, um, the one that, that I do to provide for my family. Um, and, and probably, I want to say for the first time ever, uh, N.T. Wright my favorite theologian is going to be quoted at a tech conference. <laughs> so <laughs> I snuck one in there. I've got the slides approved and everything. Uh, and I, I want to share that the little bit that I'm going to be, be sharing at the conference about him, I, I had to, obviously you have to select certain portions of it, um, but you don't get that luxury. You get the whole bit of it because I love this. I was going to try to summarize this down to two or three sentences, but it was just such a beautiful statement. I, I've got this whole thing here for us. Uh, as Christmas has become more exhausting and commercialized, many people find that keeping the preparatory season of Advent helps them to stay focused and recover something of the mystery and excitement that Christmas itself ought to have. Many churches now hold special Advent services. As we approach the darkest time of the year, in the Northern Hemisphere at least, Advent offers a gleam of light and hope. But Advent itself can be puzzling. Advent means coming or arrival. The hymns and readings often used during the season seem to be about two quite different things, about waiting for the first coming, the birth of Jesus, and about waiting for his second coming to put everything right in the end. How did these things get muddled up? How can we make wise, prayerful sense of it all? 
the early Christians developed the church's year as a way of telling, learning, and reliving the story of Jesus, which stands at the heart of our faith. As they did so, they came to understand that it isn't simply a matter of going round and round the same sequence and never getting anywhere. Think of a bicycle wheel. It goes round and round, but it's moving forwards, not standing still. The same circuit around the hub of the wheel becomes part of the forward movement of the bicycle as a whole. So it is with the church's year. We go round the circuit, Advent, Christmas, Epiphany, Lent, Holy Week, Good Friday, Easter, Pentecost. The traditional Western churches sum all this up on Trinity Sunday as we learn more deeply who our glorious God really is. The point of it all is that in doing this, we're not simply going round and round the same topics and never getting anywhere. We are signing on as part of God's larger project, God's forward purposes, his plans for the whole creation to be renewed, so that, as the prophet said, the earth will be full of the knowledge and glory of the Lord as the water covers the sea. In Jesus, God brought heaven and earth together. In his second coming, that joining together will be complete. That is the Advent hope. So the church's year overlaps with itself. In Advent, we think our way back to the ancient people of God, to the call of Abraham and his people as the start of God's rescue operation for a world in ruins and a human race in chaos. We follow the story of Israel's hope, a hope that refused to die no matter what terrible things happened, a hope that the first Christmas believed had become human in the baby Jesus. What a wonderful season. What a wonderful blessing that we get to do this year in and year out. And, and as I've done this, you know, I always have a different kind of spin on it, you know, because I do get bored myself with the, the same passages or whatever. Um, and generally what happens, the same way that I prepare for our, our normal Sunday services, is that there, there's a, something that the Lord begins to be saying to me. And it, and it kind of frames whatever else is going to be coming out. And as I was praying for our, our Advent season this year, that the theme that kept coming to my mind was time. It's time. At just the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. We've talked about that one. At just the right time in history, at just the right time in his life, at just the right time in his ministry, Christ died for the ungodly. The Bible says God is never slow as we understand slowness. There's this idea that things are happening because of God's order, because God knows what we need when we need it. One of my favorite movies is, uh, is the movie Big Fish. I don't know if you've seen this one. Ewan McGregor in one of his earlier roles before he was Obi-Wan Kenobi, I believe. Um, and and he, he's this great guy, and he goes to this mystical little city in the middle of the woods. And he goes there, and there's all these fairy lights up and down the posts, and there's just this perfect, perfect little village. And he walks in, and the people are like, oh, you're here. You're on the list. We're so glad you're here. And there's this little girl who, who's like the, the love of his life. And, and he goes, yeah, but I'm, I'm too early. I, I came too early. And, and so he wants to, to stay, but he knows that he, he can't be there yet. He's got a life to live. He has an adventure that he has to take part in. And so he leaves. Then he comes back the second time. It's too late. That, old, that little girl is now an old woman. And, and all the, the town has been broken down into decay, and, and they still recognize him, but, but it's too late. He, he missed that chance to retire there, to be a part of that life. And there's something about that that I feel like is this great tragedy that, that we fear. What if I mess up? <laughs> what if I go to the wrong school? What, what if I, I make a mistake? What if, I, what if I don't know what I'm supposed to do when I'm supposed to do it? And I think that we can take great confidence in the fact that God's timing is perfect. 
that he is guiding us, that he speaks to us, that his word doesn't return void, that we don't have to worry about missing something as long as we're following him. If we're following him, we don't need to worry about what we're going to miss out on. He will have the fullness of life for us, the fullness of hope. In the, in the Greek, there, there's two words for time. And if you've been around a church, you've probably heard this a thousand times. But there's chronos and there's kairos. Chronos is chronological time, like, you know, just the hands of a clock. It keeps count, and it goes from one to the next. Chronos keeps going. If those of us who work in, uh, in, in any industry, you probably have the Chronos software to do your hours, right? You've, you've heard of this one. So you've got the Chronos, this chronological counting of time. Then you've got Kairos, the ordered time, like the appointed time, the right time for something, the inspired time when something has got to happen, the opportune time, a due season. There's this wonderful phrase in Ephesians 5.16, the King James, it says this, See that you walk circumspectly, not as fools, but as wise, redeeming the time because the days are evil. And I, I love that, redeeming the time. This idea that the time that we have can be redeemed. We're not wasting time. The, the number of things we have in our pockets right now that we can pull out and just waste time in between things that we feel matters is such a shame to me. And I do it too. This, this isn't saying, oh, you, you are, you're all messed up, but I've got, no, no, no. We have time wasters. We have ways that, that we just fiddle our, our time away. When we could be making the most, where, where our time could be redeemed. Our time could be made the most out of it. That, that we can take part in God's opportune time, the, the divine season for things to happen. And that life doesn't pass us by. We don't show up too early or too late, but the time itself is redeemed. Most of us are, are probably familiar with Ecclesiastes, right? Time to live, a time to die, a time for everything under the sun. And those of us who have read that passage in Ecclesiastes probably get a little uncomfortable whenever it says a time to love and a time to hate. Because we don't think that way. Isn't it always a time to love? Is, isn't it always an opportune time to love? Why is there a time to be born and a time to, to die? Time to, to gather stones, a time to scatter them out. You know, we always want to be building. This is what this, the, our economy and our stock market is, is based on. It's always got to get better. I think about Oreo cookies. The Oreo cookie itself is fine. Then you make a double stuff. Okay, I'll, I'll allow that. Now there's like cookie dough Oreos. Like, what are you doing? There's mint chocolate chip Oreos. There's like Oreo cookies and cream inside the Oreo. Just stop. You've gone too far. You, you had a good idea. And you've got to keep building it. Why? Because we need to keep people's interest. We need, to, we need to keep doing the shows that you love on TV. They take the plot too far. And then you're like, oh, I, I can't watch this anymore. It's just ridiculous. Because we always wanted to be bigger and bigger and better and better. We want to build on this last thing. But yet the Bible speaks wisdom to us. It says there's a time for everything under the sun. A time to be born and a time to die. A time to love. A time to hate. A time for peace and a time for war. So this time we're talking about hope. So if I'm saying that there's a time to hope, is there a time to despair? You know, how, how do we approach this when we're talking about a time for hope? The first week of Advent, when we say hope, and I, I don't feel like we need any education on what hope is. You know when you're hopeful. You know when you have that feeling in you that things are going to work out. You know when you have the sense that it's okay. Yeah, it might be dark now, but you know what? I have a confidence that I'm going to get through this thing. I can trust God's goodness is on the other side of this thing. I can trust where I'm going 
is better than where I've been. Even when things go bad, even if there's a time for death, even if there's a time to lose these stones, even if there's a time for war, I can trust something's going to get me out on the other side. Because as I was thinking about hope, hope is evidence that we have a positive expectation on something external to ourselves. It's not depending on me and me alone, right? That would just be self-confidence. I know I can do this. You know? <laughs> That's just pride, self-confidence, the fact that I know I've got this. Hope is when we say, I, I hope for a better world for my kids. I hope they can find a job whenever the time comes. I hope that they'll find a person in marriage that, that will, will fulfill their life and satisfy them. I hope that, that I know love all these days of my life. What I'm saying is I, I, I hope that something outside of me, things that I can't control, will guide these things. I have a confidence that, that there's somebody out there who's got this. Anne said this morning that the, uh, the Hebrew word, and I, I didn't know this, that the Hebrew word for waiting and hoping are interchangeable. Because that's the idea. If, if, if you're waiting on God to do something, of course you're hopeful. <laughs> because there, there's no other logical conclusion. If you're waiting on God to do this, the only logical way you can see this is that it's hopeful. Of course. Of course you can hope that God's going to be doing this. In that sense, I think that we kind of want to say that we as Christians are hopeful people always. Always, always. Which right off the bat makes you think that our, our theme is a poor fit, right? If there's a time to hope, then, then how does this theme fit? Romans 8 says this, I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. For the creation waits in eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed. For the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay, brought into the freedom and glory of the children of God. What a, what a wordy way of saying something. What, what, what are we trying to get at? That creation itself is longing to be what it was meant to be. That all this decay, like we can let go of this broken gunk. We can let go of the things that, that, that are failed attempts, the things that, that aren't working. And we can just say, I know there's a better way. I think every person I've met in and in, 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 in outside the church, we know that this world is, is really bonkers. <laughs> we know that this world has struggled. We know that, that sin has left a mark. We know that sickness and death are not good things. We don't have to convince people of that. We, we have to know that poverty itself is bad, right? That, that sickness and death and disease and poverty and loss and, and all these things that break people's hearts, we know that those are bad. And we know that because there's something in us saying, I know there's a better way. I, I know that kind of in my bones. I know there's a better way. I know I was made for something more than what this world can give me. This world tells me we will all live, we will all die. Death and taxes, you know, <laughs> that the greedy are going to be greedy. Death is going to take this body and, and that's it. But there's something in me that rebels against that and says, no, I was made for something more. That's what this passage is saying. That it's groaning, that we're groaning, that we're part of this thing saying, this world can be what the world's going to be. But I know, I know in my bones, I was made for something else. We know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. Not only so, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption to sonship 
the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we are saved. But hope that is seen is no hope at all. Who hopes for what they already have? But if we hope for what we do not yet have, we wait for it patiently. So with this church, I don't want to say that we should maybe despair sometimes. (laughs) What I want to say is that the time to hope is when we don't have the thing before us. But it is wrong to hope when the thing is fulfilled in this very day and age. We can't hope for the Christ child to be born. We already have him. We can't wait to say, gee, I wonder what the Messiah will look like when he comes. Because we know God's rescue plan. We can't hope for another way for God to make to redeem this broken earth because that way has already been made through Jesus. We can't hope for things that that we already have in front of us. We hope for things that we do not yet have. We wait for it patiently. The wrong time for us to hope is when we already have the thing itself. I've asked you this several times now, several weeks in a row, in fact, I think, is to take a spiritual inventory of your lives. You know, what has God given you? What works has he already accomplished? What has a, a check mark next to it? When you look at, at who you were and who you are, what, what can you say, like, that's a good, satisfying thing. I can say that this is good and done. God's done something in me. God's done something for me. Now, the thing is, we all have things in progress. We're all still working out our salvation. We're all still struggling with sin. We're all still trying to follow Christ every day. We're all still trying to use the gifts of the Spirit, to be faithful, to be obedient. We're being refined and shaped and improved. We grow, we change, but there are things that are done. In the vineyard, we've used the phrase time and time again, the kingdom come and coming. The kingdom came. we, We have something that we can say, that's my God. It happened, and I know it. The Old Testament, they talked about the exodus, the freedom that they were given. That was a done work. They were no longer slaves to Egypt, but Christ came. And we led another exodus away from our sinful lives. There's a completed work on the cross as we are still works in progress, as we still have hope. And I think I might be speaking to many of us when I I think that we appreciate this tension intellectually, but practically we resolve this by making so many things in the future. And what we say is, one day I'll see the Lord. One day I'll recognize him. One day, death will be defeated. One day, justice will reign over all creation. One day, I'll understand. And we just put those things off into the the future basket. And then we say, and until that happens, I'm just going to do what I'm doing here. And we say, one day, that's all going to be great. But until then, well, I guess it is what it is, and, and we have to make do with this. When he announced that the kingdom of God was at hand, what Jesus meant is that here and now, there was a realized eschatology, which is a, a very Christian-y word. But what it's saying is that the kingdom is, is at hand, that there are things that we can enjoy and appreciate about God's rule and reign now in this moment. It's not just all future. It's not just like what we read about creation being redone and, and death finally being defeated and sickness is no longer this problem. It's saying there are things here and now that have begun that we can appreciate, that we can dig into, They're at work now, even as a grain of mustard seed. And rather than being an otherworldly fanatic saying, oh, there's this heaven place y'all should check out if you get the time, you know. You should read these words and understand heaven's going to be a great thing. Man, won't it be good when we get there? Jesus was saying here and now this world can be redone. We can have little pockets of heaven. Rule and reign of God can be realized here and now as we follow him. He ushered in the kingdom, which is centered in God's forgiving love for his children. 
And if you saw in that passage we read, so much of this talks about the first fruits, the first fruits of something. That's how we recognize this. In 1 Corinthians 15, For as in Adam all die, so in Christ will all be made alive. But each in his own turn, Christ the firstfruits. Then the end will come when he hands over the kingdom to God, the Father, after he has destroyed all dominion, authority, and power. For he must reign until he has put all of his enemies under his feet. So that's not an ordered list. It's not Christ, comma, the first fruits. The, the Young's literal, I, I, I like to use the Young's literal for this. I got this here as well. The Young's literal for this passage is, and each in his proper order, a first fruit Christ. Afterwards, those who are the Christ's in his presence. A first fruit Christ. Christ is just the first of what we're meant to be. The way that Jesus lived his life, the way that he overturned sin, the way that he combated sickness and, and death, the way that he taught, the way that he loved, the way that he forgave, he's the first fruits. And we're supposed to follow and be Christ-like in that sense, in every sense. We won't be a sacrifice for sins. That's done once and for all. When you want to say, what is done? What is kingdom come? Sacrifice for our sins once and done. But Christ is the first fruits as we follow, as we become as he is, as we practice what he preached, as we do what he did, as he was the word worker, so are we to be. We can't hope for Christ because we have Christ. We can't hope for Christ because we have Christ. I think in order to, to sound less strange than what Christians are in y'all, if you read this book, it's some strange stuff. <laughs> and if we, we don't want to be that weird, we don't want to be that otherworldly, so I think to, to be less strange, we defer this hope. We think it's an intellectual understanding. We think it's, it's a theological truth. We think he's talking about my feelings inside my heart. He's not talking about, like, you know, this world world. He's, when he says be born again, he just means, like, you know, be different than you were before, like less bad. Just be less bad, and we'll, we'll, you know, all be less bad together, and things will work out. But that's not at all what Christ led. That's not at all what he taught. And when we try to defer this church, this hope, when we don't realize that Christ is actually giving us hope that we can count on and believe and, and trust and walk out, it makes our hearts sick. Proverbs 13, 12 says, Hope deferred makes the heart sick, but a longing fulfilled is a tree of life. Alternatively, that, that's trans translated when hope is crushed or not getting what you want or being propped up with hope. I like that one. You know, whenever we try to, to defer our hope, thinking that's not for me, that's for something else, our heart just kind of dies in us a little bit when our hope is crushed. And like we said, waiting on the Lord, your hope will be fulfilled. It's meant to be fulfilled. We thirst for water because there's water. We hunger for food because there's food. We hope because there's a God who can be trusted. We hope because God has made a way and he can satisfy that. The same way my thirst can be satisfied, the same way that, that my hunger can be satisfied, my hope can be satisfied because of what Christ did, because of who he is and what he's called us to. We know that not everything we want will be satisfied. I've seen my kids' lists. They are going to have a disappointing Christmas morning, at least some part of them. They, they really swung for the moon this year, God, y'all. It, it, it's, it's crazy. I, I mean, wow. Um, I, th we're going to be disappointed in some of these desires of ours. But hope, 
This understanding that things are depending on this outside force for good, that has to be fulfilled. Actual hope, not, not longing, not, not desire, but hope, godly hope will be satisfied. Sometimes we hope in something false, something not of God, something worldly, the economy. <laughs> hope that there's going to be a job there. Well, that might not work out for you. We hope in another person. I hope this person will do that. Well, they might not. People are finicky, terrible things sometimes, you know. Our hopes can be dashed on those. Hope deferred can make your heart sick. But a godly hope will always be satisfied. But worst of all, I think sometimes when we hope for this thing that we already have, but we don't recognize it. World War I. I've got the papers here. It ended with armistice at 11 a.m. on November 11th, 1918. This is the paper that came out. The armistice is signed. Germany surrenders. It says fighting is over. Like this is a great thing for a world that was in war, a war, a war that had taken everybody by storm and homes were lost and people were, were killed. It was brutal. So this was welcome news that, that there's an armistice, that there's a ceasefire, that the fighting is over. All of Europe was notified within the hour of the armistice being signed. And that, that's before the internet, y'all. There, you couldn't tweet that one out. I mean, like, this was communication the way that the people did this. Like, you tell, you tell, you tell, and the word got out there. It's an amazing thing that all of Europe was notified within the hour. However, General John Pershing, the commander of the American Expeditionary Force, he didn't approve of the armistice. So consequently, he gave no instructions to his commanders to suspend any new offensive action during those hours leading up to 11 a.m. They gave individual commanders latitude to determine their actions on what they were going to be doing. Um, so when they were fighting fiercely and 11 o'clock came, they didn't stop. They kept fighting. On 11th of November alone, there was nearly 11,000 casualties, dead, missing, and injured, exceeding those on D-Day in 1944. Over 3,500 of those were American. Pershing had to face a congressional hearing to explain why there were so many deaths when the hour of the armistice was known in advance. Peace was here. The ceasefire was here. Like, you hope for this war to end. That, that, that reality is here. But he just was like, nah. <laughs> I think I'm going to keep fighting. I'm going to sacrifice these men, these, these soldiers. I'm going to sacrifice them because I have some hatred in my heart. I know that we all hope for this, but I hope for this to be on my terms. I hope that this is over when I kill the enemy. I hope that this is over when I say it's over. I don't, I don't trust this, this peace given to me by somebody else. My hopes rest in my hands. A telegram was sent to East Africa from Europe. It could take a, a couple of hours and a whole day to arrive. In anticipation, on November 10th, the British general staff sent a telegram to the forces in East Africa, asking them for the quickest way to get a message to von Leto Vorbeck, which I am saying wrong. <laughs> this was not straightforward, as he had been evading the Allies for four years, and his forces were scattered all over. So this was a guy on the run. He's got forces everywhere. And on November 12th, the day after the armistice, the two sides clashed again, and he received the notice that the war had ended later. There was a truce, and in line with agreed instructions, he formally surrendered his troops on November 25th. On November 25th. 
So he didn't get the message. He didn't have this anger in his heart. He didn't know that it was coming and he was going to be like, well, I'm still going to keep fighting this war. He was ignorant. He was unaware. He didn't know that there was a hope that this thing could actually be ended. But even then, how do you pull back something that you've already been doing? How do you stop fighting when the other guy has a gun and he's about to shoot you? How do you stop this fight once it's going, once it's outside the hands of this armistice? Once you already pass over that hope, what other hope do you have? You just need somebody to, to chill. And Russia is worse. It wasn't over until 1920, almost two years after the official ceasefire. And even today, information about how that went so long, how information was so misused or misunderstood, there's still questions. We don't have a casualty count for how many people and how many different battles and how the war raged there. What I'm saying is sometimes we fight for something that God has already accomplished. Sometimes we fight for something that God has already accomplished. Sometimes we're there hoping that this peace could be a reality, but we're unable to receive that peace because of the actions around us, maybe. The actions of Satan, our enemy, our own understanding, sure, all these things. But sometimes our, hang our anger, our hatred, our prejudice, our pride, our egotism, they allow us to not see it and appreciate that hope. But church, we have Christ. We have his teachings. We have his promises. We have the work on the cross. I, I realize I get frustrated myself with tasks that are unending, like gardening. I'm so bad at gardening because you have to water them like all the time. Like you can't water them once and be like done. And if you overwater, which I thought you could do, like just get ahead because I'm going to forget later. So you just give more water and, and then there's like mold growing and things are dying and the roots are rotting and it's, it's terrible. Kids, you have to feed kids every day. <laughs> Did you know that? Like they get hungry again and again and, and especially babies. You can't just be like, yeah, go in the pantry, find something. You're like you have to give them food and make them eat. And it's it's a pain, right? Dishes. Did you know dishes? You have to wash them again and again. Like where's our self-cleaning dish? And you have to do these tasks constantly. Why? Well, that's that's life. That's life. These actions are repeat actions. They're not once and for all, right? Like that, that you, you work out, you do these things, the dog, you got to take him out again and again. And, and in computer science, in, in my day job, I like to solve a problem once and then forget about it. You know, you, you make a, a program that runs, that fixes this thing, and then you walk away. <laughs> and until that breaks, everything's good. Don't, don't bother me with that. But life doesn't work that way. I screwed up again, church. You know, I sinned again. I forgot again. I, I want to fight for these things again. But Christ was a sacrifice once for all. He was a sacrifice once for all. What he did never has to be done again. There's nothing you can do to add or to take away from the sacrifice he made for your sins. That is, it's, it's accomplished. As nothing else in history has been accomplished, your sins can be forgiven once and for all. You don't have to go and, and kill another bird and bring another goat and bring another sheep and bring another lamb and, and I screwed up again, God, I'm so sorry, and now I have to say these prayers and now I have to do this dance and now I have to, you know, confess these sins and do all this stuff. It, we do have to confess our sins. I'm sorry I went too far. But, <laughs> you know, we, we take these things and we think like, oh, I, I feel bad for my sins. I have to do penance. I have to do penance. I, I, have, to, I have to look sad. I, I have to be prostrate on the ground. I, I have to take seven days of mourning. I have to do these things, and, and I have to do that or else I won't be forgiven. But what Scripture tells us in 1 John 
is if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. It's a done deal. That's what that sacrifice was for. He knew if you have ever felt God's presence, know that whenever he said, yes, you are my child, I receive you into the kingdom of God. He knew everything you would do after that day. So it can't be like, oh, but God didn't see this coming. He, you know, like, man, he, he knew I was going to struggle with, with greed, but, you know, for 20 years, like, surely I've exhausted God's grace by now. Or, or this anger that I've got, like, man, it's embarrassing. Like, God can't still be forgiving me, can he? God knew how long you'd be struggling and wrestling with addiction and sorrow or depression or anxiety or, or, or anger or greed or lust. And he said, who you are now, I receive you into the kingdom of God and I forgive you. Keep following me. Keep coming after me. We'll work this thing out. But the sacrifice for sins is done. You are justified. You're brought into this family. We'll work on sanctification. The reason the Son of God appeared, 1 John 8, was to destroy the devil's work. Most of us don't need to use much of our imagination to understand the devil's work. When we talk about let your kingdom come, we struggle. What does it mean for the, God's kingdom to come? What does it mean for his rule and reign to be practiced? But we know when hell touches earth. We know when, when brokenness reigns. We know when, when somebody has anger and they touch our lives with that. We know when, when lust goes amok and, and there's, there's terrible violence done to other people in society. We know when deceit and lies are the loudest thing in the room. We know when hell comes to earth. Do we recognize, do we long for heaven to come to earth in such a powerful way? When we say, let your kingdom come, we understand hell incarnate, but Christ came to give us hope incarnate to give us heaven incarnate, to work this thing out. If we've lost hope, we've probably lost sight that God is a good God, or we've lost confidence in him having the power to change this broken world. We have no need to hope for the things that God has already accomplished. And I want this to be a universal list, I really do, you know, forgiveness, healing, revelation, but the thing is they're not, they're not a complete list because they're still being worked out. There's people who are still need to experience those things for the first time. Not all are saved. Not, not all are healed. Not all are redeemed. And that's a tragedy. But it's, thank God we have time to work this stuff out. Thank God his heart is still beating for people and he hasn't abandoned his creation. First Peter, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his abundant mercy has begotten us again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to inheritance incorruptible and undefiled that does not fade away, reserved in heaven for you who are kept by the power of God through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. Because what we've experienced, others have not yet. He's a living hope. He's living. He's breathing. He's moving. He's leading. He's guiding. He's directing. He's taking us from one place to the next. He reacts to the things in this world, the brokenness that people throw around. He's living. It's not just a theology or an understanding. He's a living hope. It's not like, whoo, you know, God never saw this internet thing coming, y'all. Like, th this one really surprised him. He might have seen the car and trains and the telephone, but the internet, it's a godless wasteland. They're, they're, God had no idea we'd be able to tweet and to, to share cat pictures so quickly around the world. No, God knew about the internet before man did. And there's ways for us to explore this avenue with God's hope 
to say, God, what are you doing? What are you doing today? He's a living hope. Christ has been revealed. Second Thessalonians. Concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered to him, we ask you, brothers and sisters, not to become easily unsettled or alarmed by the teaching allegedly from us, whether by a prophecy or by word of mouth or by letter, asserting that the day of the Lord has already come. Whoa, whoa, whoa. <laughs> Didn't that confuse you? That's not what you expected. Somebody's saying that Christ has already come. They're saying, don't worry about it. That's not what we're telling you. Christ has not already come. They knew he was born. They knew Jesus lived, on the, lived and, and, and ministered and died. What they're saying is his second coming hasn't happened yet. So don't, when people are saying, here he is, second coming's here, don't, don't worry about that. But we ought always to thank God for you, brothers and sisters, loved by the Lord, because God chose you as first fruits to be saved through the sanctifying work of the Spirit, through belief in the truth. He called you to this through our gospel, that you might share in the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. So then, brothers and sisters, stand firm and hold fast to the teachings we passed on to you, whether by word of mouth or by letter. In other words, as Christ was the first fruits, you're the first fruits. Amen. I'm the first fruits. This thing that, that he did, like, we're now a part of that thing. Which, again, we can put Jesus there, we get that, but now he's saying you are the first fruits to a world that needs it. The living hope is being lived out through you. A world that's in darkness needs to see Christ, and that living hope is through us. We are now the first fruits. We bring this joy, this hope to people who don't have it. They're living in darkness. They think that this is the best that it gets. The best that we can get is maybe avoid a war. The best we can get is maybe retire from my job after 40 years. The best I can get is maybe have my marriage not dissolve into divorce. The best you can get maybe is not to be addicted to alcohol or to drugs. The best it can get. And what the church is saying is, no, Christ has a better way. That even if death comes knocking, that even if there's a time for hate, even if there's a time for stones to be scattered, there is always hope. Because there's a greater God doing greater works, and he has my best intentions in mind. And I can trust that, because that hope will not be disappointed. In other words, hold on to hope while we wait. Don't be overly anxious and try to make something happen. Don't worry when it takes a while, because we are the first fruits. Colossians 1, the last one. To them God has chosen to make known among the Gentiles the glorious riches of this mystery, which is Christ in you the hope of glory. To them, God has chosen to make known among the Gentiles the glorious riches of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Are we showcasing that? Are we living up to that? Or have we turned aside our hope? Are we like that general in World War I who's still fighting the fight because we have anger? Are we ignorant? Do we not know the telegram took long to get here? I, have, I didn't hear this gospel message. Do we know what's coming? Are you hopeful? church? Are you hopeful? Have you lost sight of God, of his goodness, of his power, of his promises? We're, uh, we're done. <laughs> <laughs> That's how, we That's how we're going to end it right there. Just cut it off. Because I, I want to move this into a, a time for you to respond. You know, th these aren't words that, that are just to light candles by and, and then, and then uh, get on with your day. And you've got shopping to do, y'all. You know, there's how many shopping days until Christmas? you got... 24, right? I can do this math. Um, <laughs> so it's not, it's not just words. That's not just a, a, just a casual question. That, that, that I want you to respond. Are you hopeful? 
Like, are, are you a person of hope? Do you really believe that things are going to be getting better for you as you follow after God? Or have you forgotten? Do you not believe? Or have you not seen? Are you ignorant? Or has hatred and malice and jealousy clouded your heart so much that you can't even see the armistice, the treaty that you have with God, our Creator, our Father, that we're not at war with Him, but God's good intentions are for you to live this out? Are you a hopeful person? Are you looking past Christ and us, what Christ has already accomplished? Are you saying, well, I know Jesus, but, but isn't there another hope? Isn't, isn't there a, oh, I didn't mean to make a Star Wars reference, a new hope? Is there, <laughs> is there, isn't there somewhere else that I can hope, you know, because I don't know what else we have? Trying to find hope in something else, not believing that Christ is that? Do you believe that you have the kingdom come now, not just coming? This isn't a chastisement, church. This is a gift. Hope is a gift. You know, church, we're a people of hope. Please, let us be who we were meant to be. Let us be who we were meant to be to a world that needs to see it. The glorious riches of this mystery, Christ in you, the hope of glory. So let's pray. Lord, thank you that you came and you spoke and you lived and you died that you accomplished something that we never could, as hard as we might try, that you reconciled us to the Father. You brought us back where our sin had led us astray, where, where we had been lost to, to anger and hatred and malice and violence and, and lies. You brought us back. And our hearts rejoice when we realize that, that yeah, this is who I was meant to be. This is the fulfillment of my, my soul's longing and I belong here. I belong in your presence, Christ. Thank you for doing this, for showing me a more perfect way. Thank you for putting hope in us. Father, I want to pray for those of us who don't have hope, those who have lost sight of you. And Father, would you do your work? Would you reveal yourself? Would you even reveal yourself through your church? Would you empower us as a people of God to be ambassadors of hope, to, to speak hope, to doubt, to blindness, to ignorance, to those lies, to those deceits that say God's not good or that, that God wants to destroy us, that, that, that God is our enemy. Can we be that people of hope that remember a more perfect way? Can we do that today and tomorrow in this whole Advent season as we say, Lord, let your kingdom come. We long and we wait to see these things fulfilled and satisfied, but we realize that we have it now at hand because your kingdom has come. Church, I bless you to go with Christ, to go be a people of hope to a world that needs to see it. In the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen.